Thank you for introducing the sermon in that way. It's a story to the children. <clears throat> Before Megan left on her sabbatical, she invited me to preach this last Sunday before this one week before her return. And I immediately, immediately responded that I had recently read a text from Mark's gospel that really spoke to me with new insights. I'm grateful for this opportunity to share these learnings, these reflections this morning with you. But this has not been an easy text for me. Thankfully, I've had all these intervening months to prepare, and never in my pastoral ministry have I had the opportunity to spend so much time preparing for a sermon. The story of a woman who anoints Jesus is a difficult text. But its importance is highlighted by the fact that the story appears in all four of the Gospels. This raises the first challenging question. Why do some of the details of the story differ? Or should we say stories? At least two or three stories of women who anointed Jesus told in these four Gospels. Let me briefly walk you through the four Gospel accounts. Matthew and Mark are almost identical. Luke's version is the most distinctive, coming early in Jesus' ministry in the home of a Pharisee who, where a sinful woman comes and bathes his feet with her tears, wipes them with her hair, and then pours out, and kisses the feet then, and then anoints them with the ointment. In John's account, like Matthew and Mark, it comes during Passion Week. But in John's account, it is at the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And Mary is the one who pours the expensive ointment over his head. And Judas is the primary accuser in the dispute about giving to the poor. Despite these different details, why is the story told in all four of the Gospels? What is so very important about a woman creeping into the scene, causing such a disturbance that only Jesus can move the, the story forward and even his remarks leave everyone confused, including us today. For me personally, the details of this story are where the rub comes. You see, I think Jesus gets it wrong. And I like to be right. By nature, I wonder if I was always destined to become an Anabaptist, even though I chose, I grew up in a Mennonite church, 
but chose to spend eight years outside of the Mennonite church, first at a, Mennonite, at a Methodist university, and then five years in, a, in essentially Presbyterian uh, reformed seminaries. But I returned to the Mennonite church. In part, I suspect, because I like to be right. And while Mennonites like to say it is more important to do right, I can testify to the awareness that striving to be right is often, uh, to, to be right is a stronger urge than the desire, the will to do right. Today, I am giving my 700 29th sermon. So I checked my files to see if I have ever preached from one of these four texts before. Only one time, and that was when I was assigned the text in seminary in, for a seminary uh, preaching class, and that doesn't count. I think I have perhaps unconsciously avoided this story. I have felt uncomfortable with some of the main details. Upon careful reflection, I can identify some of my points of discomfort. Just think of the image of a woman kneeling to wipe Jesus' feet with tears and drying them with her hair. Now that's a portrait even harder to sell in our culture where we are sensitized to the issue of male dominance. But it's also the dirty, smelly feet thing. On the other hand, I appreciate the special uniqueness of the biblical culture. There's often a message to be learned as we pay careful attention to uniqueness in other cultures. The Hebrews saw the beauty of feet differently than we do today. The apostle proclaims how beautiful are the feet of those who preach, who bring good news, which is actually quoting the more vivid imagery of Isaiah, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And speaking of anointing, ponder the metaphor portrayed in the poetic lines of Psalm 133. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil poured upon the head, upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, and running down the collar of the robes, of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. Then there are the details of the dispute in the second half of the, the story that feels uncomfortable. 
the anointment was expensive stuff. A whole pint of it, probably imported from the east. What a waste to be poured out on feet or someone's head. A year's wages. Think of how the poor, hungry children could have been served. On the surface, Jesus' response doesn't fit. He was on the wrong side of this debate. I cannot forget the memory of one of my favorite Old Testament professors who passionately declared, God has a special bias for the poor. While it's hard to do right, this truth endures in my confession. But what really is going on in Mark's story? Matthew and John have essentially told the same details. Set in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem during Passion Week, two days before the Jewish Passover. Jesus has been speaking about what would take place this time in Jerusalem, where just days before he sat on a donkey, parading through the streets to the shouts of Hosanna to the king. The stage is set for the chief priest to initiate plans with Judas to arrest Jesus. And now in Bethany, men eating, reclining at table, clueless to the impending danger. This woman weaves her way around the men. This interruption of shame, she humbly pours the burial perfume over his head. In righteous disgust, the men scold her for this wasted extravagance. They have heard him decry leaders who, 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 who uh, pillage the poor. Quoting Mark's version, an unnamed woman pours perfume on Jesus when the dispute erupts. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her sharply. Let leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing. The poor you have with you always, and you can help them anytime you want. But you do not always have me. What she has done, she has done all she could. She has done a beautiful thing. The beautiful thing she has done, literally translated, means good work. She has done a, this good work for Jesus, offering all she has. Jesus credits her for getting it right about his predictions of death. 
the other disciples seem to deny God's plan for human redemption in the suffering Messiah, Christ. Perhaps Judas has a clue, and he's contemplating how he might divert Jesus from wasting his power and life. But her beautiful act was not about self-hate. It exuded profound joy, love, respect, and worship. She gets it right. This past summer, I witnessed a special act of beauty in our worship service here at Salem Mennonite Church, which made a deep impression on me. I wonder if others noticed this beautiful act. It was during the service when we were saying farewell to John Hicks and Hannah Notes and their sons Samuel and Theo before their move to Michigan. As the family gathered here in front for this blessing, their young son burst out in loud shrieks of distress. Then in a split second, out of the corner of my eye, I saw someone from behind me quickly rush forward and dip down behind the family and our pastors and the boy quieted. Entertained by the woman unrecognized to me in the flurry. The service of blessing flowed on. I immediately leaned over to Janice and whispered, what was that all about? I mean the woman who quieted and calmed the little one. How was it that this woman stepped forward with no apparent prompting? Janice whispered to me, oh, she's his Sunday school teacher. I sighed and thought, that is beautiful. No hesitation, without prompting, in a flash of a moment, I witnessed an act of beauty, and I shall not forget it. A week later, we were driving our car, listening to National Public Radio. After several minutes of listening, I thought, here is a perfect illustration of what happens when we encounter beauty. How our brains recognize beauty as it flashes across the brain. The radio program, Hidden Brain, was an engaging interview with neuropsychiatrist Ian McGilchrist on the theme, one head, two brains, how the brain, uh, how the brain's hemispheres shape the world we see. We've seen diagrams of the brain, two spheres, left and right. Simplistically, the left brain processes logic. 
and verbal messages. And the right brain, well, it's moody and perhaps creative. Some have said that there are brains function like a computer. But McGilchrist protests. The brain is not at all like a computer. It's far more complex. McGilchrist argues that far more significant than the two spheres of the brain is how the spheres communicate with each other. Then he illustrates by pressing a single musical note. The left surveys and conveys the big picture. But what happens when a thousand notes are played and your ear hears an entire symphony? It is the interplay between the two parts of the brain that registers beauty. The space between notes, the intensity, the volume, both spheres work together. The, the interview went on to begin to illustrate the complexity between the two different forms, between different forms of art, like poetry and the humor in a good joke. This is something of, the, of an illustration of how our brains function rapidly, simultaneously, intense, nuanced, colorful, and all the ingredients that make up communication. Jesus recognizes all the complexity of this woman's act of beauty. Love, devotion, self-giving, extravagance, humility, aroma, sacrifice, the list could be endless. Now I want us to take a moment. We're going to have a, a short intermission to sing a song from the worship book 122. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. 124, please stand. And this is based on Psalm 29 and uh, Psalm 96. 